2: You've heard us say before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic.
0: The entire
1: system of elections in the United States is, for the most part, set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go
3: grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very
1: well because
3: you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides.
1: Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We'll interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration, from voter registration to ballot casting and county, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. Sir, are you registered to hear
0: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
2: All right, yeah, I know. No. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
3: Brexit means Brexit. My
4: administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
3: Hello and welcome. It's uh, me, Royful Brown, and this is Mid-Atlantic. Today, we're doing one of our specials. We don't have our normal panel where we look at US and UK politics uh, in depth. We're looking at the crisis that uh, has gripped um, not only Europe, but the world. It's the invasion of Ukraine. During Ukraine's 30 years of independence, since the Soviet Union's collapse, it has had to contend with neighbouring Russia's tightening grip and expanding power on the country's geopolitical future. Instead of following the current Russian invasion and the heroic defence of Ukraine by its people, today I want to look at Ukrainian politics from 1991 to 2022 with Greg Sittel, who lived in Kiev and has witnessed the Orange Revolution. And the growing sense of Ukrainian national identity. Greg, hello. How are you today?
2: Uh, well, thank you, Roy. Feldman.
3: Just before we we start, you have family in Ukraine. Are they well? And where exactly are they?
2: They're mostly around Kiev. Although my my one niece, she she went to the southwest, which apparently is is quite quite quiet at the moment. But so far, they're they're all okay, but a, a bit shook up.
3: Understandably so. Uh, let us begin. Uh, the story starts uh, with independence in 1991. After the failed coup attempt in Moscow, uh, the Supreme Soviet under Leonid Kravchuk declare independence in Kiev. Boris today
4: recognized the independence of two Baltic states, Latvia and Estonia.
0: And the second largest Soviet republic, the Ukraine, today declared its independence. This
2: was a day that dreams are made of. Oh, the declaration of independence
0: of is on as of
1: today. An already emotional week ended today as the people of the Ukraine embarked on a new beginning, becoming the fifth <laughs> republic to break yeah. away from the Kremlin. The Ukrainians admit these are uncertain times. Uh, the dark days of communism are over. At the newspaper, the editor pointed to his computer to find the right words, sure to grace tomorrow's front page. They mean glory to the Ukraine, glory to our heroes.
3: There's an independence referendum in in December and I know you weren't there Greg. But look at, looking back at the history of this, I'm I'm somewhat kind of surprised by the not only the turnout, but, but the vote in favor of independence. There were some 90% of eligible adults voted in favor of independence, and that was 82% of the electorate. We're always led to believe that there is this big divide between Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians. I know you weren't there at the time, but do you have any sense as to reason why There was this massive vote for independence from the Soviet Union. Was this just a case of people voting against communism or was these people voting ostensibly for um, a democratic Ukrainian state? Yeah, it's a good question.
2: I don't really know. I do know that in the West there had long been a, a nationalist movement for Ukraine. And even in the East, the divide was more an urban rural type of thing where Ukrainian is something that was spoken in in outside the cities and in the home, where Russian was more used for business. Of course, in the extreme East and the extreme West, there were people in the east who really didn't speak ukrainian and people in the west who really didn't speak russian or at least very much preferred not to but most of the country was fully bilingual i don't know why the the referendum was was so in favor of of independence except that all of the soviet republics were were going independent. So I think it was just an acknowledgement that the Soviet Union broke up. Again, I I don't have specific expertise. I will say, having met Leonid Kravchuk on one occasion, he was really like an old-time party boss. He wasn't what you would call a dynamic leader.
3: Mm. And and he's going to lose an election a couple of years after that. Well, I think it's kind of interesting you say that is this old style kind of party boss. Is that another kind of layer to the kind of forthcoming kind of development of Ukrainian politics? In that you have these old style Soviet bosses who fundamentally can't really keep up with the, with the new reality of not only of a market economy but also with a democratic nation.
2: I think with with the people like Leonid Kravchuk, they didn't get to their position because they were great managers. They got to their position because they were loyal followers. So, you know, this was the the generation that that kind that presided over the demise of a great empire. So, you're not talking about extremely competent people. The 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 person who the next president Leonid Kuchma he was a bit more interesting but still kind of like an old-time factory manager but very very savvy in the way he
3: did things so if we move on from 1991 we have a new nation Ukraine is bequeathed to the world along with all the other kind of former soviet republics but kind of symbolically it is Ukraine becoming independent which puts a death knell into any kind of greater Russian union because Ukraine is the second most populous of, of the of the republics and there is this kind of commonwealth of independent states for a little bit this loose kind of arrangement but in 1994 Ukraine signs a collaborative partnership with uh with NATO and gives up its nuclear arsenal in exchange uh, for a signed agreement, which is actually with Russia, the US, and the UK to protect its uh, sovereignty. Was there any, was this just really like a bit of a, a, a fait accompli? Was it the case of the, this new nation um, wants to give up its nu- nuclear weapons because it wants to s- Start this kind of drift to the west. Maybe set us in, in, in the in the place and time. It's the 1990s. We have this unipolar world. Why did Ukraine, you know, do this?
2: Well, I'm not an expert on this particular subject, but my understanding is, and I would fact check this: mm-hmm. they had nuclear nuclear weapons, but they didn't have missiles. So these, uh, I, I don't think they had delivery systems for these weapons. So these were just my understanding of it is these were a massive liability. You remember after the fall of the Soviet Union one of our our biggest concerns were were loose nukes. So I think Ukraine saw these more of a, as a intense security burden than a a real asset. I, I'm not sure that they they have the the vehicles to actually attack anybody with these with with these weapons. And I I do think it's important to point out that the Budapest memorandum was not a collective defense treaty. We didn't make Ukraine effectively a NATO ally. We didn't agree to defend them if they were attacked. We agreed to respect and support It's sovereign borders, which we have done, of course.
3: And and of course, what, what I've kind of failed to say with my question is the fall of the Soviet Union. There are nuclear weapons all over former Soviet territory, or at least specifically in the Russian Federation, Kazakhstan and Ukraine, which is the reason why an independent Ukraine finds itself. With this kind of uh, nuclear hardware on its territory, let's go to to two thousand. So it's just before you actually um, arrive um, in Ukraine. Why don't you tell us about what you were doing at that time and the reasons why you decided then to move to Ukraine, Greg?
2: Oh, I was running media businesses in Poland and. A Swiss publisher was having some problems with their Ukrainian operation. So they sent me there to clean it up.
3: Short, succinct answer. September 2000, a prominent Ukrainian journalist goes missing. And it's kind of alleged that the Kuchma administration have bumped him off. And his beheaded body is found some two months later in a forest just outside of Kiev. And there are recordings uh, that surface show that Kuchma and his subordinates do actually order his killing. So it gives us a real sense of the level of suppression of free speech and uh, and corruption, which, which is going on in, in Ukraine at that time.
2: God's Gate was, was a really big deal. And this intersects with my story a bit. So what had happened I don't think Kuchma ordered him killed, but someone in his regime did. If I remember correctly, I think Medvuchuk, who is playing a role in recent events, might have had something to do with it. But Kuchma's bodyguard had been secretly recording, and again, I believe it's his bodyguard, it might have been somebody else in his entourage, was recording Kuchma's meetings and had hours upon hours. Of of recordings and he actually recorded them discussing Gungadzi's uh, murder and he, he he was eventually found beheaded so he was killed but I believe this was around the time that Jed Sundin who uh, who founded KP Media and Kiev in uh, Kiev Post he was eventually my business partner and and we were close friends and we ran that business together f- for five years when he was reporting on on Gangadze or when Kiev Post was reporting on Gangadze, when Jed had returned to the uh, had, had he, he was outside of Ukraine when he flew back he was stopped at the airport and declared persona non-grata and and denied entry into the country, and as it happened, Madeline Albright was supposed to visit Ukraine that very week, and just by chance, Jed knew somebody on her staff, and 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 got to her and and made a phone call, and Madeline Albright said, "Well, we obviously can't come to the country if you're." denying American journalists entry. So they had to let Jed in or would have been a a huge international incident. But the upshot of it was after that, we were considered politically untouchable. And I think there was an impression that we had connections that we really didn't. But that's what helped us to do a lot of the things to establish Independent journalism in, in Ukraine—that we can see serious evidence of of today.
3: Uh, thank you for the in-depth analysis of the kind of the ramifications of Gagata's death, Greg. Also, just give a, a wider context: Putin is now elected president of Russia, and at first, we, we know he's an, an apparatchik uh, of the old school in terms of his kind of view view of the world but we're in this kind of still in this weird period in in terms of the fall of the soviet union the west still has pretty good relations uh with russia and i think that's ki- kind of Im- Im- important to note was there any sense with the passing of yeltsin and then putin becoming the president of, of Russia. Was there any kind of sense that the temperature or the mood music between uh, Moscow and Kiev had changed at all? Do you think?
2: I think it's important to remember that the ruble crisis was in 1998. And that was incredibly traumatic for both countries. And we as uh, America and the West, we were trying to stabilize them. So you know we were worried about contagion so we were trying to help them so so around that time and this is a big part of of why putin rose to power because he was seen as more stable he was much he was everything that yeltsin was not he was very sober he he wasn't drunk he was he kept himself in shape he seemed quite modest at the same time kuchma had been in power, I believe, for for four. I, I believe Kuchma was
3: from '94.
2: Uh, yeah, so so he had been reelected in 1999, and he was a pretty savvy operator by this point. And he was very very good at playing the Russians and the West sort of off each other. He was very savvy about making everybody happy and sort of going his own way where at the time Putin was still uh, mostly a political neophyte.
3: Well, it's interesting you say that about trying to make everyone happy, because he does uh, nominate Yukoshenko to be his prime minister in 1999. And Yukoshenko is pro-Western. And uh, as we've established, Kuchma is somewhat of, of the old school. But that was obviously really key to him winning that second election, the fact that his prime minister is going to be somebody who is much more Western-leaning.
2: I, I wouldn't say that. I don't think Yushchenko was excessively Western. I think to understand Kuchma and also Putin, I think you need to understand this concept of Hazayan, which is almost like a, a feudal lord who's the protector of his domain. He might abuse what's ever in his domain, but he is still the protector of it. And I think Kuchma was very much a Hazayan. And he wanted Ukraine to move forward, just not too much. Now, Yushchenko under Kuchma. And I think it's important to also remember all of that sort of cast of characters, whether it was Yulia Tymoshenko, the ones that became the reformers in the Orange Revolution in 2004. Tymoshenko had reformed the, the, the gas market. And Yushchenko, before he was prime minister, he was the head of the central bank. So I wouldn't think. I don't think it'd be fair to classify Yushchenko as somebody who was excessively pro-Western or anything like that. But he was very much a technocrat and the reformer. So, in the wake of the ruble crisis, Yushchenko is seen as somebody who had successfully tamed and stabilized the Krivna and the the ukrainian financial system and that's why uh, he was seen as a politically apt choice for prime minister
3: okay so we we need to move to 2004 we have an election of which the result is going to be contested
1: demonstrators clash with police hundreds of thousands protesting The results of the election and calling for a new vote. Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election, pitting their candidate, the West-leaning challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, against the pro-Moscow Prime Minister, Viktor Yanukovych. They claim Yanukovych's victory was rigged with reports of ballot stuffing and voter intimidation. The country's election commission ignored reports of fraud, declaring Kremlin-backed Viktor Yanukovych the winner. Far from backing down, Yukashenko has called for a nationwide strike, warning the country is on the verge of civil war. If they shoot us, if they send tanks, no matter what, there's nothing that can overpower the will of the people.
3: Give us a sense of that election campaign. You're now ensconced in in your new position in in Kiev. What is a Ukrainian presidential election even like, Greg?
2: I think you have to start back in the spring, I think it was, because at first my, and I should mention that a friend of mine helped organize the protests, the Serbian. So the There was a direct lineage from the fall, the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic. The activists there then went and trained the activists in the Rose Revolution in Georgia, which was in 2003, and then the activists in Ukraine in 2004. So there was already this atmosphere. Milosevic had been overthrown in 2000. Then Georgia... Just the year before, and you, and that was incredibly inspiring to Ukrainians. So during the spring, there were whispers. It was there was something going on. You couldn't really put your finger on it. And I also think I wouldn't classify Yanukovych as pro Moscow. I mean, he was, but I, I wouldn't say that was the salient aspect of his persona. Yanukovych was a thug who was, I believe, twice convicted of violent crimes. And he looked thuggish. And he spoke thuggishly. He was almost a caricature of what a thug looks like. And at the time, it was Ukraine was really run by clans, where Kuchma, was from Dnieper Petrovsk. Yanukovych was from Donetsk. And he was backed by Renat Akhmetov, the richest man in in Ukraine, still, I believe. So you have this incredible matchup where you have Yushchenko, the clean, intelligent-looking technocrat, who was almost completely lacking in charisma, and this thuggish, criminal Yanukovych. It was almost cartoonish, the the contrast. The problem, of course, is that uh, Yushchenko, it was really hard to be passionate about him. He was a very, very boring speaker. He even looked, he was a good-looking guy, but he just, he looked boring. Then the Russians poisoned him, and not only almost killed him, but disfigured his face. And this is the moment which Yushchenko became incredibly passionate and charismatic, ironically. So what was supposed to send him, end his his political career, actually energized his campaign. But even then, through the summer, it didn't really seem possible. And then I actually write about this in my last book, Cascades. It was September. I remember I woke up early one morning and my wife, who was then my, my fiancé, who's not an early riser, she, I woke up early one Saturday morning to find her not only awake but fully dressed and sort of quietly sneaking out the door. And so I asked her, where are you going? And she says, oh, I'm going to a demonstration. And I, I said, but I, I thought you didn't care about politics. And she said, yeah, I didn't, but it's enough already. And we have to do something. And it was really just like that. Like overnight, somebody flipped a switch. And all of a sudden, everybody we knew we're all going to political demonstrations on a regular basis in what had been a politically apathetic country up to this point and that was almost as if the entire country woke up politically
3: is it an oversimplification to say that the choice between the two candidates is one who's more Moscow leaning and one which is more kind of EU leaning. How can we understand Ukrainian politics in, in another prism? Is that the only way to fundamentally understand it? Or is one more of a marketeer and the other one is more for, uh, let's say, let's say social democracy? I think the best way to describe it was between the, the technocrat and the thug. I think
2: if they would have chosen another candidate, they could have probably gotten away with it. But Yanukovych was so incredibly thuggish, it was just a bridge too far. And Yushchenko had not only an air of competence to him, but now an air of almost an air of a martyr to him through the poisoning and that constant reminder of his disfigured face Again, the only way I would describe it is almost cartoonish between the thug and the forces of dark darkness, and then the, the technocrat and the reformer. At this point, it really took on a European relevance, and certainly not a NATO relevance. That would come later. Remember, this was the Orange Revolution. Euromaidan came later. Orange was Yushchenko's campaign color. I would later learn that through my research into movements, that was one of the real weaknesses of that particular movement because it really was associated with Yushchenko and his presidential campaign. So once he was in office, that enabled everybody to go home. And once he started to... Run into trouble as a president, the movement was pretty much finished.
3: But we still have a little way to go before, don't we? Before he actually gets into office. Because sorry to
2: the, jump, jump ahead, we call that foreshadowing, yourself.
3: Oh thank thank you, thank you, Gregory, thank you. So the results are going to come in, and it's very obvious there has been fraud because Kuchma's uh, preferred choice, Yanukovych, is uh, is declared the winner. However, that's really what ignites then, isn't it? The the orange re- revolution, the orange movement, because they say, no, there's no way that this guy guy has won. And then there is going to be a whole period of uh, instability throughout the country. And then there is going to be a, a new election uh, of which Yushchenko is then declared the winner.
2: There's a bit more to it than that. So, so remember, there had been... Uh regular demonstrations so on the eve of the election everybody was ready at, on the on the maidan and things were already being set up it's
3: in important sorry Greg. when you say things were already being set up for the fact that this was that they were going to declare the loser to be the victor it's like you're saying that people knew what was going to happen
2: it's it's really important to remember all of this came out of the Serbian movement in 2000 and a, a good friend of mine helped lead that particular movement and they had learned first from the first from the failed protests against uh, the war in Bosnia in 92 and then a an election uh, a, a very similar falsified local election in 1996, which Milosevic had failed to recognize. So in 2000, the plan was all along when they formed this revolutionary movement in 1998 in, in Serbia, they said, look, we know we can mobilize people and get them to the polls. And we know if we get them to the polls, we, are, we can win the election. And we know if we win the election, Milosevic will try and steal it. So that's what we'll plan for. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. They they weren't planning on winning the election. They were planning on Milosevic stealing the election. And their entire movement was geared towards that. So now you have the same guys who led that movement advising Pura, which was the youth movement in Ukraine they would have been very very attuned to the fact that there's a big possibility that that the regime will try and steal this election. So that's they were very much planning for that. actually I've never discussed this with my friend but it's um, knowing him as I do uh, and having uh, having watched events they were very very much prepared for that night. And, and they already had everything planned and in, in, in place for not only the protests on the Maidan, but the tent city on Krishatik was set up in a very organized and defended way that on the main street in Kiev, in Kiev, that, that leads to the independent square or the
3: Maidan. Okay, so we go into two thousand and five, and I read an article of yours from Forbes, and you describe the two thousand and five to two thousand and ten period, and you say that democracy splutters, so you have you know the heady days of the orange revolution we, there's this great wave of optimism reverberating around Ukraine, and you say in, investors flocked for new opportunities in Ukraine. So why did democracy splutter between 2005 and 2010?
2: Yeah, this is really interesting. And I would would later learn, researching my book, Cascades, that this is so incredibly common. There's even a name for it. It's called the failure to survive victory. And that's very much what it was. Everybody felt that we had done our job. And now it's time to go home. And Yushchenko was a bit slow, and he wasn't a strong enough leader. And he didn't quickly put in reforms. And it just kind of got stuck in a morass. Nobody had ever done it before. Nobody knew what it was like to reform a government. We just thought that if we elected the right guy, everything should be okay. But at the same time, it's important to remember the context of what had gone on in Eastern Europe in the preceding, let's say, 10 years, where you had the Visegrad countries, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, which had this incredible economic renaissance Which had then, in some ways, spread certainly spread to the Baltics and to a lesser extent, Bulgaria and Romania. And so, if you're a European investor, it seems like the next domino to fall would be Ukraine. So, from our point of view, in as a business that you know very much wanted to do deals with. Western European co- uh, companies. From our point of view, before 2004, we were like a, you know, it, Ukraine in, in economically was almost like a leper colony, meaning that the media companies, the, the Western companies would sort of come in once a year and take a look around and say, maybe it's interesting, maybe we'll, you know, we'll, we'll come back next year and maybe someday after 2004, where you had this incredible democracy movement, all of a sudden, we were the bells of the ball. Everybody wanted to talk to us. So there was this, this sort of feeling of prosperity, but at the same time, this kind of feeling that that Yushchenko, you know, wasn't, wasn't a superman and, and couldn't really solve all, all of our problems
3: and also i think it's it's important to to note and you've made the link before that the orange revolution uh, is very much the uh, the sibling of the rose revolution in georgia and in 2008 what we're going to what we're going to see is a russian invasion of of georgia It it applies for EU membership, inquires about NATO membership. And this is most definitely the first time that we really see overt Russian military power and pressure put on one of its near neighbors and we have uh, they support the breakaway of abkhazia south ossetia and russian uh, tanks nearly roll all the way to tbilisi to how did uh, ukrainians kind of feel about that specifically considering that it, as i said its orange revolution somewhat mirrored the rose revolution and then we've seen you know this kind of naked power play by putin and the russian military in georgia
2: now, Saakashvili was very, very pro-Western. I believe he studied in the United States on a Muskie scholarship. He spoke excellent – well, still speaks excellent English and was much more than a reformer. He was, he was a very, very strong leader, and he pushed through – he did everything Yushchenko did not. He pushed through uh, very, very strong – reforms very, very quickly, really stamped out corruption and made a, a incredible reforms. So from in, from the Ukrainian perspective, we very much identified with Georgia and felt that Georgia had gotten some things right that we had gotten wrong. Also, an interesting historical fact is the year, I believe it was the year before Ukraine had sold Georgia an anti-aircraft defense system, which uh, had been used to shoot down, I think it was seven or eight Russian aircraft, which, which also became a, a bone of contention. But at the time, people in Ukraine very much identified with and admired the Georgians.
3: Okay, so and then in two thousand and nine, we're going to have Yanukovych um, makes a return, and is that in large part because people are just disappointed with with this Orange Revolution, and also I suppose in two thousand and eight we also had the, you know the the Great Crash as well, didn't we? So is that the reason why Ukraine then seems to turn back and and, and have a, a guy who you describe as a thug to be its next president?
2: I would say that this. The the stronger factor would be the financial collapse. It was just the Ukrainian currency, if I remember correctly, dropped about 40%. I remember how incredibly traumatic it was, almost surreal. At the same time, Paul Manafort, who we, of course, remembered would, would do similar things for Donald Trump, he was very savvy in how he repositioned Yanukovych as a force of stability. It was, in a lot of ways, similar to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yes, here's this guy who's a technocrat, and he thinks he's so smart, and all it's brought us is trouble. Here's an alternative who might not be so fancy and talk with big words and all that but he's a solid stable guy. And that in the in the context of a really traumatic economic collapse, I believe it was 2010, he was able to edge out because Yushchenko didn't run. He was able to edge out Yulia Tymoshenko who was this incredibly charismatic Uh, woman who was such a, a powerful speaker so i would i would i would say 2010 in 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 ukraine is very much the model for 2016 in america where you have an almost comically thuggish and boorish candidate talking you know but but is is being positioned as some somebody who's who's a man of the people and talks simply but straightly with a a woman who is portrayed as thinking that she's better than everyone
3: but the one thing yanukovych also does though doesn't he, is that he does signal that he wants to have some kind of association agreement with with the EU. So he's not just classically looking towards Putin and Putin's kind of punitive kind of economic... area which he's trying to set up with the ex-Soviet republics, isn't he? That is, is this kind of also part of the reason why he becomes president, because he does make some concessions to those Ukrainians who do want greater links with the West.
2: It, it's a very good point. He, he, he was trying to pose himself as, as a reasonable person, where Timoshenko was a bit hysterical, and I would also point out that she wasn't necessarily an anti-Russian candidate either. And there were there were some there was some speculation that at least some factions of the the Putin regime actually preferred Timoshenko.
3: We're going to get all the way up to November twenty thirteen, and John go through President Yanukovych. is trying to go through with his uh, kind of campaign promise to have some kind of economic links with the European Union. He sat, I believe, in Vilnius and doesn't sign that agreement. And then that seems to be kind of like a breaking point. Then It sends shockwaves through Ukrainian society. Take us through... That moment, we're at then a Maidan Square. Tell us about that shockwave that sent through Ukrainian society. And then please describe the the actions of November 2013 for us,
2: Craig. I do think it's it's important to explain the the intervening three years where Yanukovych was such an incompetent and corrupt ruler. It has been estimated that, and I don't know whether this is, is true or not, but the bulk of the estimates indicate that. There was a a hundred billion dollars looted out of Ukraine by Yanukovych and his cronies in that three years as a just just for to, to give you a, a sense of the context of that, I believe Ukraine's GDP at the time was just a little bit more I think maybe a hundred and twenty billion dollars so they they literally stole you know, uh, 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 the in country's entire GDP and just basic services weren't being done. I, I mean, they, they stopped cleaning the sidewalks. People were falling down and breaking their arms because the sidewalks were covered with ice. But there was just such excessive criminality, almost unbelievable, where people, if they had a certain position, their bodyguards would beat up policemen. They would basically be above the law. Their children would go to nightclubs and have their bodyguards rough up bouncers or or whoever they wanted. It was just utterly lawless. And then this was the final betrayal. It was almost as if You rape our country continuously. The only thing that they were holding out hope for was this EU agreement, which which would give them some hope of being able to be a so-called normal country at some point. And even that, he took away from them. And at that time, a journalist and, and sometime activist named Mustafa Nayem who I would interview for Mustafa for for my book, Cascades. He told me that it was uh, just 100% spur of the moment where he saw that Yanukovych had backed out of this EU association agreement. And he just writes in, makes a Facebook post. And he said, come on guys, Uh, I don't want likes meet me at the Maidan, and we will, and I I forget the exact verbiage of it, but something to that effect, like this is enough, we need to go back to the Maidan. And he, he goes down at the appointed hour, and there were thousands there. And that's what kicked off what is now known as the Euromaidan protests. The recent scenes of violence between the government and opposition forces in Ukraine look like a war zone with two armies going head to head. The visuals reflect the
0: deepening divide that's pulling Ukraine in two different directions. One toward Russia. The other toward Western Europe. We call on all sides to put an end to violence immediately. Faced with this division, President Viktor Yanukovych has chosen Russia. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burroughs.com slash ACAST.
3: One of the immediate ramifications of um, the ousting of the president, the popularizing the president, uh, who then goes off to Russia, is going to be that Russia seizes control of the Crimean Peninsula. This happens literally in, in the space of one day because there, there is a Russian military naval base at Sebastopol. And so literally Russian troops just walk out and take over the whole peninsula.
4: America is officially calling a Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, apparently pulling no punches, although it is unclear what the White House can really do about all of this. This is a Russian invasion, the U.S. says. It has no doubt these are Russian forces and has demanded their immediate withdrawal.
0: The Russian military must stand down. The aspirations of the Ukrainian people must be respected and political dialogue must be allowed to continue.
4: Putin told Obama that Russia has the right to defend its interests and people in Ukraine. We've seen it for ourselves. This column of armored personnel carriers roaming the roads here in Ukraine's Crimea where most people are Russian, while the shadowy pro-Russian forces here violently took over government facilities. It has fueled civilian unrest across eastern Ukraine. In one city, pro-Russia demonstrators rampage through City Hall and brutally beat those who oppose them. There is a growing international chorus slamming Russia's actions. The British Prime Minister saying there is no excuse. Canada withdrawing its ambassador from Moscow. But many here are hoping Russia will go further. you want the Russian army to come here? It's,
3: it's our family. It's not Russian uh, uh, army. It's our family. They protect us. If you're listening to the podcast, you listen to the recording of this podcast, you'll know that uh, we're incredibly passionate about having informed voices on the show. Uh, what you can also do is uh, join the show by downloading the clubhouse App to your smartphone, and then you'll be alerted if you go and find the Mid Atlantic Club. You'll be alerted as of when we go live with these rooms, so you can be in the audience and you can also be on the podcast. Greg, we have the annexation of Crimea, and then a few months after that, we're going to have uh, pro- provinces. The Russians are going to pay in the local thugs, gangsters, to start an insurrection there. Looking back at this, is there anything that Obama and the West could have, maybe should have done in terms of trying to roll back this Russian um, aggression? Or was this really just a fait accompli?
2: I think it was a fait accompli. Certainly, there's more that we could have done. And, And certainly, after Georgia, where we did basically nothing. But I think it's important to to mark the progression and draw the contrast between the Orange Revolution, which, as I already mentioned, really marked a change of mindset in the country and very abruptly, in terms of the ambition of of the basic, Ukrainian on the street and how they saw themselves and the relationship to the world but there was a as i already mentioned uh, the orange revolution was very much about an election about yushchenko's campaign and it was very much centered on that one person or you could argue his his running mate tymoshenko as well that that particular coalition. It's also, I I think, important to, there was an incident there that we only found out about later. And that was the interior uh, minister who was close with Moscow. And I believe, again, Medvedchuk was involved in this, but I would have to go back and, and check. But definitely that faction, they had ordered the interior ministry tro- troops and depending on who you believe russian troops uh, it, it, as well to go into kiev and to shoot into the crowd and to to violently end this this movement this orange revolution and it was kuchma who put a stop to it. First, the, the head of the SBU and the army told the the interior minister, look, if you send troops there, they're not just going to be facing unarmed civilians. They're going to be facing the, the Ukrainian army and the security service troops. So there was a, an incredible scene where this convoy of soldiers was on its way to to Kiev. And they had to stop by the side of the road until this dispute was resolved. And Yanukovych was pushing for them to be sent in. And Kuchma stamped his foot down. And he said, no, that's not going to be my legacy. And Yanukovych said, I forget what it was, and Kuchma said, remember who you're talking to. And that was pretty much the end of it. So now, 2013, it's still Yanukovych. You have the same interior ministry types with their shock troops called the Berkut, but there's no Kuchma to stop them. And they do shoot into the crowd and a battle sort of erupts with unarmed civilians and and these bercute snipers just picking off civilians and it was so and I know I keep using this word traumatic but you can't understand how much it wounded the soul of the nation and and that was eventually <clears throat> what brought Yanukovych down was even even in Ukraine, it was too much. And when he was impeached, he was almost unanimously impeached. Even his own party turned on him, and that's when he fled. So uh, it was a complete collapse of the regime. And as you rightly point out, so the lease for Sevastopol, which is Russia's only, which is a naval base, which is Russia's only method of projecting power into the Mediterranean, is coming up for renewal in just a few years. And now you, it looks like you will have a very pro western government that is very anti-russia and that puts that Sevastopol base at risk but i would also point out that uh, crimea has always been kind of a militarized place almost like like a, a san diego where not only are there a number of military bases in 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 crimea but a lot of Russian military retirees. So they come, so they walked off of multiple bases. They didn't have to invade. And then, of course, they they took over Crimea and then, of course, started the incursions into Donbass. And this was really the point of no return. This is when the point at which Ukrainians who had always had some mixed feelings about Russia, this is the moment at which two things happened. First, the country became almost virulently anti-Russia overnight. Second, in marked contrast to the Orange Revolution, the matter of the the revolution of dignity, it wasn't about a single person or a single government. It was about adopting European values. Again, the 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 crux of the matter was in the name. Orange Revolution was about the Orange candidate. Euromaidan was about now seeing Ukraine with a European destiny, with European values, and that was the real split.
3: Fantastic, traumatic year. Uh, thank you for that, Greg.
2: I think it's really important because I don't think you can understand 2022 if you don't understand 2014. It was that split in 2014. That's what that's why they fight so hard today, because to capitulate to Putin now would be to pretend that that split never happened and to go back to that horrible Yanukovych regime, and to give up hope for being a so-called normal European country forever. And I think that's incredibly important to understand with respect to events today.
3: The other thing I I just want to add, uh, you you kind of wrote, before I I throw the mic over to to David and and Frank, who's joined us on stage, you you wrote that, in effect, this is a, a demographic Shift that people who can even remember uh, the Soviet Union they're dying every day, and and who was created every day are new people who have no recollection of this Russian-dominated kind of Soviet uh, kind kind of entity. Is that the best way to to describe the the change in demographics in? in ukraine because if if we read the media reports it 's very binary. It says there are Russian speakers and they 're pro russia there are Ukrainian speakers who are pro western full stop. Are there Russian-speaking Ukrainians who are as pro-Ukrainian as the Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians? And and is it fundamentally one where younger Ukrainians have, regardless of the language that they speak, are much more pro the the new state, which is some 30 years old?
2: The language thing is really a red herring. There are certainly Russian speakers who are every bit as feel every bit as Ukrainian as 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 Ukrainian speakers. But uh, and, and let's face it, President Zelensky is one of them, even though he does speak Ukrainian as well. The vast majority of the country is bilingual. And completely bilingual. So it's, 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 and, and, and speak both languages depending on, on the context. So I really do think that the language, while it's somewhat of a factor, it, it's really been overblown and, and, and it's less and less every year. All kids are educated in Ukrainian. All official documents have been in Ukrainian for the last 30 years or so. So that's not really an issue. I think there's there's two issues. One, the demographic issue. Anybody under 40 has almost no memory of the Soviet Union and certainly no nostalgia for it. And then this issue of – but I I think even more than that is this growing – Feeling that Putin will just not leave us alone after two thousand and four in two thousand and five, the feeling was ukraine should should take a Finnish type of approach where they're both in the eastern the western camp and the the Russian camp, and then Putin made it clear in two thousand and thirteen that that was impossible, that he would never allow that to happen. And now, over the last eight years, the country has been struggling to input reforms, build institutions, all of these very, very difficult things that very that that many countries struggle and making slow but steady progress. And I think what Putin has done has made this a sort of Manichean type of struggle, where if they don't beat Putin now, they will never have their own country. I think, I think many Ukrainians feel that way.
3: Thank you for that, Greg. Uh, David Velotsko, um, over to you, So You've been waiting patiently to, to get on stage. Feel free to ask two or three questions, and then Frank, you'll be up next.
1: Yeah, thanks. I guess the first one I would ask is, we've, with regard to the current situation, we've all heard <clears throat> Putin's repeated refrains, his justifications for getting into this. One of the main ones being the refrain about NATO's movement, not one inch. Although there are reports that the Americans never formally made such a promise and the Soviets never formally demanded one, and that this is just sort of a fabrication that's been sort of accepted without being checked and the other one sort of the one that's i think is more of the clickbait that a lot of people raise a lot of eyebrows is the putin mentioning that he wants to go in and denazify the area and there there are issues i i'd like to hear you speak on that on well first on the not one inch but also there are some issues there's some things to be said about I guess the presence of neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine, or I mean, there, for for instance, there's the the 2017 incident incident with the monument in Poland, where they you know they took down the monument to Ukrainian soldiers. You can understand why they wouldn't want a monument to Ukrainian soldiers in Poland, and then in response, Ukraine decided to forbid the exhumation of victims of the 1943 Nazi massacre of Poles. So that kind of thing, or the the U.S. State Department once referred to. Ukraine's uh, Interregional Academy of Personal Management as one of the most anti-Semitic institutions in Eastern Europe. They even hosted David Duke once, I think. So, so although we look at Putin's justifications and we see that these are essentially lies for, for an you know, imperialist agenda, I'm curious about any any underlying truth to what he says about, for instance, not one-inch or the degree to which there there really are neo-Nazi issues, or if those are just fringe and it's really not at all representative. I'd like to hear you talk about that. Thanks.
2: Yeah, I, I don't have any information on the not one inch thing. It's just, it just seems ludicrous to me that somebody, some, somewhere, I mean, I could say that I heard the Russians say that it was fine. I mean, there was, that is, I'm not a, a foreign policy expert, but it does seem to me, that's why you make agreements. I, I, I can't imagine ever in business anybody said, oh, somebody, you know, three, uh, uh, you know, three CEOs ago told, promised me this, and, and that taking the form of a binding contract, it just it, it seems absolutely absurd. The Nazi thing is much more complicated. And just to explain a little bit of the history, so there has long been... A, a, a Ukrainian nationalist movement that tries to keep Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian language alive, and the head of this movement, the the leader of this movement during World War II, was an, a man named uh, Stefan Bandera, and Bandera. So you can imagine because you, Ukraine was not just ruled by Russia. Large parts of it were ruled by by Poland. So the nationalist movement was very anti-Russian and also very anti-Pole. So Bandetta, in the sort of classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, The one person during the one entity during World War II that was both anti-Russian and anti-Polish was Nazi Germany. So Nazi Germany would support Banderas nationalist movement where he's fighting now against the Soviets. And eventually they turned on him and he ended up in the in a concentration camp. So there was this sort of alliance of convenience between the Banderovki, the the Banderaites, I guess you'd call them, and the and the Nazi Germany during World War II. So that movement during World War II to sort of fight for Ukrainian independence is aligned. Or was aligned with Nazi Germany, and like most places in in Eastern Europe at the time, there was an anti-Semitic. There was certainly an anti-Semitic tinge to it, as as most things were in Eastern Europe at the time. I can say today, and I should mention that I am that I'm Jewish myself. The anti-Semitic feeling in Ukraine is almost non-existent and certainly much less than Poland. And there is a an absolutely thriving and powerful Jewish community in Kyiv. So I, I would say certainly that there is a a nationalist Nazi neo Nazi element in in Ukraine, but I would say far less than far less than in the United States, for example. And and I, I think that is is very much a red herring as well.
1: Thanks. I have one more question. I think one of the things that a lot of uh, people following the story have been really surprised by is the sort of the 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 savviness, almost of, I guess what you could you could almost call like the PR or the way that the Ukrainians have been presenting themselves and catching the public eye with different things that people have been saying, different videos, and this I've seen I've seen commentary that this is kind of surprising. This is you know this is some sort of new development, new way of of responding of handling the situations. But I think. There's an argument to be made that Ukrainians have maybe always had a little bit of that. And one example that uh, you mentioned in your book during the Orange Revolution, when they, when they had that slogan, together we are many, and there was like a pop group that like turned it into a song. And so to what degree have they always kind of had that? Or do you think that's just kind of, a, you know, sort of something that you tend to see anyway, or is this unique to Ukraine in some way?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. That the, the, that song, uh, the Eurovision song, that was that was. Uh, I think that was kind of a one-off. The chant "Razem nas pohato, nas you could, which means "Together we are many, we won't be overcome." You, it, you could hear it anywhere during the Orange Revolution. Everywhere you went, people were chanting that, and then this pop band. G. Green Jolly decided to just turn it into a song and then the song became the entry to to Eurovision. It was it was a a funny it was a funny it was a a nice way to sort of co-opt that viral meme that had spread during the Orange Revolution. I wouldn't say that that Ukrainians have long been incredibly uh, information more savvy. That original movement during the Orange Revolution, they were trained by the Serbs who patterned a lot of what they did. If if you even look at their handbooks, where if you go to the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, which is now their, their organization and their website, they talk very much about if you're a revolutionary, you need to think like Coca-Cola or Apple. You need to market your revolution. So that was very much a part of their training in the movement for the Orange Revolution. I think the savviness with, uh, w- that you see today – I think it's very much Zelensky. Uh it's I think it's very much rooted in him and his entertainment background and he he really understands the power of communication. Even just today he was having a a press conference where he was absolutely trolling Vladimir Putin. And it was funny because a lot of the translations didn't get it quite right. But he said, he said, Putin, why don't you come and negotiate with me? But but not 30 meters away, like you did with Macron and Schultz. sit next to me like a neighbor. You know, I don't bite. I'm a normal guy. What are you afraid of? So very, very uh, savvy in terms of communication and symbolism. But I, I really do think
1: that is uh, a unique talent to, to Volodymyr Zelensky. Just one quick follow up: what what was the name of the website you said the Serbian website that that said think like Coca Cola?
2: Yes, so that is the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. The the actual website is canvasopedia dot com, and those were the original activists from Serbia, who then went and trained the, the activists first in Georgia, the, which was called the Kamara, and then in, in Ukraine with Pura. And then after that, they created this organization and since then have trained activists in, in over 50 countries.
3: Uh, thank you for giving me your ears after a week which we has seen the brave people of Ukraine go onto the streets and to not only remonstrate but to defend their status as as an independent people. The invasion of Ukraine has been something which is totally unprecedented since the, since the end of the Second World War in Europe, and quite simply, if we don't aid the Ukrainians in their fight for independence it's the end of the liberal world order it's as grave as that and they are on the front line being uh, a people who want democracy and self-determination against autocracy so our thoughts and our prayers and our wallets and dare i say it, our guns and our bullets should be sent to them in their brave defense of their nation i'd like to thank greg satel for being with us and explaining Um, the last 30 years of Ukrainian independence. And we're not just going to cross our fingers and hope that it has another 30, 30 more. And I'd like to thank you, listener, for listening and, and being a, a proud supporter of the Mid-Atlantic podcast. If you are listening to the podcast, and I know there's some 5,000 of you download the podcast every time we do it, please download the Clubhouse app and then become part of the audience. One of the great things about Clubhouse is that intelligent, people are more intelligent than me, like David Velazko and, and, frankly, Lee etc who are on stage can actually ask questions and, and be involved in the debate so if you listen to the podcast Danlad clubhouse find our room mid-Atlantic and please join it and again thank you Greg Sattel, for giving us such great detailed testimony on uh, the independence from 1991 to 2022 of the proud nation. Of Ukraine that's been me Royfield Brown uh, we'll see you all again in approximately what two weeks time for another rip roaring roaring barnstorming episode where we don't demonize our right leaning brethren but we try and win them over the strength of our argument take care look after yourselves bye bye